Isaiah chapter 58, beginning at verse 5. Is such the fast that I choose? A day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to clothe him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, Here I am. This is God's word. Revival is when God comes down among us to make himself overwhelmingly real to us. Now we can't force his hand. The Bible says our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. But that doesn't mean we do nothing. What do we do? By faith, we prepare the way of the Lord, as the Bible says. In other words, we present our lives and our church to God as revival ready. A.W. Tozer was a leader in the American church in my dad's generation. And in the middle of the 20th century, he wrote this. A revival of the kind of Christianity which we've had in America the last 50 years would be the greatest tragedy of this century. A tragedy which would take the church a hundred years to get over. That's interesting. What kind of life, what kind of church, what kind of Christianity does prepare the way of the Lord? Isaiah tells us in today's text. And this is a challenging passage. The last time we were in Isaiah, chapters 56, 57, the interpretation of the, of the, of the text was, was not obvious. We had to struggle with that. This time, the meaning of the text is not that hard to figure out. This passage is challenging just because it's so blunt. Now you see in the outline where he's going with this. And he has basically three points. Fasting without a blessing. And the question is, why is this so? And then secondly, favor for a reason. Then you see the if-then structure to the reasoning in that part of the passage. And then thirdly, failure with a remedy. We know those words appear in verse 12 of chapter 59. Confession. Acknowledgement. Isaiah's intention in this passage is to inspire Christ Presbyterian Church to take bold new steps forward as a force for justice and evangelism and world renewal in every sense at every level and his wisdom this is not the worldly way of creating a new world his wisdom is not 
the way, uh, to take us through self-assertion, but to lead us forward through the confession of sin. Let's look at verse 1 of chapter 58. Favor, fasting without a blessing. Chapter 58, verse 1. Cry aloud. God says this to the prophet Isaiah. Cry aloud. Do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression to the house of Jacob their sins. God wants Isaiah to bring out the big guns of prophetic confrontation. Clearly, this passage is aiming at the conviction of sin and God does not want Isaiah to be soft-spoken about it. He wants Isaiah to speak with a trumpet blast. Now, looking at verse 1, he talks about declare to my people their transgression and so on. What do do we expect to read next? What kind of people are we going to encounter as the passage goes on? What are they going to be like? As we continue in the passage, these people are probably going to be trashing every one of the Ten Commandments. But that's not what we find. Verse 2. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Now, if you moved from Nashville to a new town somewhere, you were looking for a church, and you found a church in that town that sought God daily, delighted to know His ways, asked of God righteous judgments, and delighted to draw near to Him, you'd join that church. And so would I. But God might not. It's possible for a church to do these good things with no self-awareness, without asking deeper questions. What were these people actually thinking? Verse 3. Why have we fasted? They're saying this to God. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? So... The believers that Isaiah is addressing have been fasting. This passage may have been written for a fast day in ancient Israel. They've they've been fasting. They've even been afflicting themselves. That's what the... When it says we've humbled ourselves, that could also be translated we have afflicted ourselves. Isn't that taking sin seriously? But God is still standing off at a distance. God is still withholding himself. Why? When these people ask God why, that question is not an open-hearted request for instruction. That question, they're dumping their frustration on God. They're blaming God. They think God's being unfair. They are both pious toward God and angry at God at the same time. And it's their very sincerity that explains their anger. They sincerely believe that they can obligate God, they can pressure God and so forth. And when they're fasting and they're praying and their self-deprivation don't leverage cooperation out of God, they resent Him, they're offended. Do you see? What's poisoning their souls is not horrible sins like thievery and murder. What's poisoning their souls is their religion. 
Where have they gone wrong? The key words are as if in verse 2. As if they were a nation that did righteousness. The believers that Isaiah is confronting were role-playing righteousness. But for people to seek God and for people to be like those who seek God, that difference is infinite to him. What does God discern? What does God see in their shallowness? Look at the second half of verse 3. Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with the wicked fist. (laughs) Because, you know, one of the difficulties of fasting is you get kind of grumpy. I do. I get grumpy when I'm not fasting. He says, fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose, a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed? I mean, you can just feel the sarcasm here. And to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? God sees what we can't see. One of our problems is that we tend to think piecemeal. We tend not to connect the dots between fasting and seeking God and all the rest. Wonderful disciplines. They are material to authentic Christianity. But we tend not to connect the dots the way God does. Between those holy disciplines and life Monday through Friday. But God knows that we can't compensate for disobedience in one area of life with obedience in another area of life, especially when fasting and these other disciplines is actually less demanding than loving people and labor-intensive involvement with needy people. Now, It's so easy to go wrong one way or the other. God does not want us to live prayerless lives, running on our own steam. God wants to fill us, and then He wants to refill us continually with the Holy Spirit. So we need to be quiet before God. Every one of us needs to be quiet before God. Fasting is a valid way to do that. But neither does God want us to prove our devotion to Him by making ourselves hungry and and miserable while at the same time disregarding our obligation to make others full and happy. And that is Isaiah's point. If our Christianity, however sincere, however passionate, does not move us to make our world a better place, to change our surroundings, then it's not just unhelpful to others. The Bible says it's unacceptable to the Lord. The Bible says religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. John Perkins 
whose name many of us know, um, the heroic African-American leader of the modern church, he, he writes of, I like the way he puts this, the bigness of the Bible, how it takes in the whole person, both an individual's personal actions and social actions. But one of the marks of modern Christianity, we must, we must have self-awareness here. One of the marks of modern Christianity is what sociologists call privatization. What they mean by that is this. They mean the tendency in the modern world for believers to treat their faith as a personal lifestyle option disconnected from public responsibilities. Now, Christians have not always been like this. This is a pressure we face as modern Christians. Jonathan Edwards, in his day, he knew better. He wrote, Christian love disposes a person to be public-spirited. A man of a right spirit is not a man of narrow and private views, but is greatly concerned for the good of the community to which he belongs, and particularly of the city in which he resides. Isn't that beautiful? That's God's kind of Christianity. Christianity must be personal. But it mustn't stop there. Or it's just a spare time hobby. You see, the essence of authentic Christianity is a great heart for Christ. That's the genius of it. That's the power of it. That's the pith of it. The sine qua non of it. And that inner power expresses itself, that authentic Christianity is unleashed out of us in basically two ways. On the one hand, in acts of worship and praise and prayer and lifted hands and open Bibles and so forth, all beautiful to God, and also in courageous evangelism and defending the weak and feeding the hungry and so forth. It's not either or, it's both and. That's the point. But putting ourselves out for others is more contrary to our natural selfishness and therefore more significant to God. To seek Him in a way convincing to Him is, is what we all want. What then does make our voice to be heard on high? Second point in the outline now. Favor for a reason. God explains. In verses 6 through 14, you can see in the outline there how Isaiah moves back and forth three times between the kind of Christianity God accepts and then his promises of favor. Let's look at it. Let's, let's think our way through this now. First, God calls us to take responsibility for our surroundings. Verse 6. Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? You know what a yoke was. It was this heavy wooden bar that they put onto the neck of, a, of an ox and they would strap it around him. Some people in this world are treated like animals. 
And God wants us not only to lift that yoke, He wants us to break it. He continues, Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and to bring the homeless poor, not the criminals, into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Now the NIV, great translation, the NIV translates that last line, and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. Now when we read flesh and blood, we think family, relatives. But Isaiah means more than that. Your own flesh, and that's what the Hebrew says, your own flesh, that's the human race. When we feel cold, when we feel hungry, when we feel pain, that misery in our flesh is exactly what other cold, hungry, suffering people feel too. They are our flesh. We share a common bond of humanity and we have a responsibility to them because God cares deeply about all human sufferings, both physical and spiritual. Now here's the deal. Who, who are we here in church? We are the haves in every sense. We are the haves in this world, both materially and spiritually. And all around us are the have-nots, both materially and spiritually. And God cares deeply about them. And God has blessed us not for that blessing to die with us. God has blessed us to make us a blessing to the whole world at every level. We know that from Genesis chapter 12. We studied that weeks ago. And that is Christianity. Are you aware, for example, as I read on the web this week, that 24,000 people die from hunger and hunger-related causes every day, most of them children. And how many are slipping into a Christless eternity? God cares about that. The Christianity acceptable to Him is, is not a private religious joyride. It is the power of the gospel filling our hearts with the love of God. And liberating us to stop saying, it isn't my responsibility. So that we do what we can. We can't do everything. Jesus said, the poor you will always have with you. You and I are not going to fix the world. But we are responsible. God has blessed us to do what we can. About poverty, illiteracy, slavery, abortion, political manipulation... People going to eternal hell. We don't need three years in seminary studying the Bible to get the motivation to obey God in this way. Three days in third world squalor, or maybe just three seconds in hell, would motivate us all. When we suffer, God is giving us a gift. He is not being cruel to us. He is giving us a gift and a privilege. 
He is empowering us to care more meaningfully for others, to enter into their sufferings. But in our modern age, some Christians reverse that and without even realizing it, quench the Holy Spirit in their lives. They respond to their pain by turning inward in self-focus and self-pity. That is not the mind of Christ. And any understanding of Christianity that ends up reinforcing rather than challenging our natural self-absorption, well, God says that is not my kind of Christianity and I will not smile on it. The symbol of our faith is a cross and its message is love pouring itself out for others. One time Jesus asked a sick man in John chapter 5, Do you want to be healed? Why did he ask that? Because misery can be useful. It can be a good excuse for evading responsibility. But the gospel of God's grace creates generous, hard-working, available people. The Bible says, you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You will love your neighbor as yourself. And God smiles on that kind of Christianity. God visits that kind of church. Here is his promise in verse 8. Then your light shall break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, Here I am. You want God to answer your prayers? Go be the answer to somebody else's prayers. You want God to say to you, Here I am. In His immediacy, in His presence, in His power, go get close to someone else who needs you. Here's the paradox at the center of life. This is right at the center of human existence. It's counterintuitive. It totally goes against our consumer culture. There is almost nothing in America today that will encourage us to believe this and live this way. But here's the truth. It is more blessed to give than to receive. That's true, isn't it? Every one of us has experienced it. Why is it that way? Because God is a happy giver. And God is an intense lover. And God is a relevant helper. And He is calling us to be like Him. Secondly, second half of verse 9, first half of verse 10, God calls us to correct the wrongs around us right down to the, here's a detail, gossipy finger pointing, as you can see in the end of verse 9 there. And here is God's promise in verse 10. Then shall your light arise in the darkness, and your gloom be as the noonday. Is your personality gloomy? Is your home a kind of dark, unhappy place? 
Well, maybe the answer to that is complex. I don't know. But in it all, do not overlook God's remedy. If you and your family went down to Salama and you poured yourselves out for the inner city, God says it would cheer you up. And it's not only a remedy for you. By the time we get to chapter 65 and 66 in Isaiah in due course, he's going to be pointing us all the way forward to the new heavens and the new earth at the end of time where there will be no poverty, no unbelief, no misery at all. And that is where God is taking us. But that new world begins right here in this sanctuary as the preaching of the gospel helps every one of us to say, hmm, maybe I don't need to assemble a perfect little world around me where I get it all my own way. Maybe the passion of my life should be that others may live now and forever for the greater glory of God. Maybe... Maybe that should be the mission of my life. We are another in the in the in God's plan for history. We are another incremental step toward the new heavens and the new earth. That's what God is doing here. We are the beginning of the new creation. Here's another promise in verse 11. That will be like a watered garden, like a spring of water, whose waters do not fail. You remember on Easter Sunday, um, we looked at John chapter 7 and Jesus spoke of rivers of living water, the Holy Spirit gushing out of us onto others. There's a sort of a geyser within, a new source of life and refreshment. How might that actually work? What, what might unleash that spring of water within? James Montgomery Boyce was pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. He was a significant pastor scholar. And he got down to brass tacks when he said this. I would say that one of the best things that could happen to many believers would be for them to be led to give away all at once a substantial part of their savings. That is, they should give a substantial part of their capital. Why? Because there is something about giving away a sizable percentage of one's money, and of course the amount would vary entirely from one individual to another. There's something about that that is spiritually invigorating. And there is seldom a case in which a large gift does not throw the Christian back on the Lord and increase the feeling that he is all wonderful and that he is more than able to care for the one who trusts in him. I have seen this happen in many instances and I have never known a true Christian to be sorry for even the most sacrificial giving afterward. If your life is a continual effort to cope with the grim business of survival, just getting by. God has more for you than that. He has springs of water. And this is His way 
into overflowing joy for us all. Here's another promise in verse 12. That God will rebuild our ancient ruins. What is Isaiah talking about? Again, John Perkins tells the story of the black race in our country as, quote, 200 years of slavery followed by two or three generations of economic exploitation, political oppression, racial discrimination, and educational deprivation. Even in a young country like the United States, we have already, we have our ancient ruins. But ruin is not the last word for the human race because God is remaking the whole world according to the gospel, including human dignity. And He intends to do it through us. The text says, you shall raise up the foundations of many generations. God wants to make you into a hero in His story of world redemption. The world may never know you. They may never cheer you or acknowledge you. But God wants you to play that role in His plan. Thirdly, in verse 13, God calls us to create a culture of God-centered Worship. That's what the Sabbath is all about. You see in verse 13 how he refers there to the Sabbath. Structuring our weekly schedules around glorifying and enjoying God together. And here is his promise in verse 14. Then you shall take delight in the Lord. Delight in the Lord is the most powerful, God-exalting, world-conquering, sin-expelling, marriage-healing, Bible-believing, middle school kid-raising, worship-igniting, world-transforming power in the universe. Not just clamping down, but delight unleashed. That is the power of the gospel. How is that significant? Remember William Blake, the poet, Tiger, Tiger, Burning Bright? Slightly weird guy. But he, listen to this poem. I went to the garden of love and saw what I never had seen. A chapel was built in the midst where I used to play on the green. And the gates of this chapel were shut and thou shalt not writ over the door. So I turned to the garden of love that so many sweet flowers bore, and I saw it was filled with graves and tombstones where flowers should be, and priests in black gowns were walking their rounds and binding with briars my joys and desires. That is not God's kind of Christianity. God loves delight. And He is calling us to structure each week around His great and serious joys. Let's reform our Christianity to make it pleasurable with the pleasures of God. Do you know what that means? It means that Sunday is not an extra Saturday. 
It is the Lord's Day. When we launch, it's the first day of the week, when we launch into the efforts of a new week by setting lesser things aside and replenishing ourselves with all the fullness of God. And that's the centerpiece of our week, and everything else fits in around it. Now, that is the kind of Christianity that God owns with reviving favor, accepting responsibility, correcting wrongs, creating delight. How do we get there? Chapter 59, verse 1. Failure with a remedy. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. God is powerful. God is listening, and he wants to say to every church, Here I am, but we have to be revival ready. He won't send us his power if we'll only use it to empower a kind of Christianity he doesn't identify with. So what are these sins and iniquities that turn his face away? Verse 3. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wickedness. What offends God is the way we hurt each other. In what we do and in what we say. Isaiah describes that all the way through verse 8, as you can see, as you glance through those, past, those verses, verses 3 through 8. In fact, how we mistreat each other is so significant to God that Paul quotes verses 7 and 8 over in Romans chapter 3 when he is describing how urgently we need a Savior. Here's the point. Apart from the cross of Jesus, this is what we are, even we, the people of God. And the world is waiting to see the church taking responsibility, correcting wrongs, and creating delight in the power of the Holy Spirit. So what does God want us to do? In verses 9 through 13, where the passage comes to kind of a focused conclusion, do you see how the pronouns change? Look at the outline there. Verses 1 through 3, second person pronouns, you. Verses 4 through 8, third person pronouns, they. But then in the conclusion, 9 through 13, first person pronouns, we. We own up to our sins. We confess them to God. You see the change there? Verse 9. Therefore justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, and behold darkness, and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. Now the most important word in verse 9 is that first word, therefore. When we melt in repentance, we stop asking God why, we stop blaming Him, and we accept His assessment of us, and we say, therefore, 
justice is far from us. We stop pouting. We start thinking. Verse 12. For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us. And we know our iniquities. Transgressing and denying the Lord, and turning back from following our God. Speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. Revival always includes the confession of our sins. It's like lancing a boil, and the infection pours out, and that's when healing begins. Renewal with God, reconciliation with one another. Revival thrives amid truth and an honest reappraisal of ourselves before God, including our weaknesses and our blind spots. And we can risk that honesty with Him because of the cross of Christ, where all our sins roll away. The fastest way into the new heavens and the new earth is the triumph of grace in the world. And the fastest way to the triumph of grace in the world is the triumph of grace in the church. What do you have to confess to God this morning? What do I? Have we been taking responsibility for our surroundings, correcting wrongs, creating delight? Maybe some of us are thinking. Sure, those poor kids downtown don't have a chance in life. They're always going to be working dead-end jobs, flipping hamburgers and paying rent. But my kids are going to college. It's just the way our society works. Christians don't rock that boat. And I'm a good Christian. I have a quiet time every day. Isn't that all God wants? What do I have to confess? Sure, my friends at work are going to hell. But I've got my Bible study group, and I feel comfortable. I'm a good Christian. I even give to foreign missions. Isn't that all God wants? What do I have to confess? My prayer for this morning would be this. Was this. Is this. That maybe for some of us for the first time, we would begin to see that Jesus at his cross was doing two things. He was both bearing our sins far away, never to return, and he was teaching us how to think. He was opening up before us full acceptance before a holy God forever. And He was setting us an example. He was saying to a guilty, helpless world, it is your fault, but it's my problem. I am taking the responsibility on myself to restore you. Many of us here at Christ Presbyterian understand the implications of that and for years have been living that out beautifully. And you've been giving yourselves away to the point of weariness and the hand of God is upon you. 
the favor of God is upon you. And in your demanding schedule, you are enjoying His presence. And God in heaven is saying to you this morning, Well done, good and faithful servant. Don't quit. You'll rest in heaven. Just keep it up. Others of us don't understand. In that case, there are two possible explanations. One, you're not born again. You're using Christianity for your own selfish ends, but what Christianity provides is a sort of a moral legitimacy as a glaze over it all. And God is saying to you this morning, you must be born again. You need to be rescued from yourself. And only I can do it. Seek me. Show me you're in earnest. And God is saying, I will more than meet you halfway. The second possibility is that you are born again. But what you love about your Christian life is not Christ, but your Christian life. You don't understand that the consummation of true Christianity is not your perfect little world, but a whole new world where righteousness dwells. But you just don't think out beyond yourself. Secretly, if you'd admit it, you're disappointed that God doesn't come through for you in the ways you want. And God is saying to you this morning, The sin that makes a separation between us, that breaks our fellowship, is your selfish lifestyle. In this real world of urgent need and gospel opportunity, God is saying, that way of life offends me. Repent. And when I can see in you my kind of Christianity, your revival will not be far away. Now, our dear Father in heaven, we simply want to tell you together as Christ Presbyterian Church that we're very grateful you've put us in a strategic place with significant needs. Thank you for that privilege. We love it. And we want to take full advantage of this opportunity that you've set before us. And so we ask you to stir our spirits and make us a force for justice and evangelism that will compel the attention of the world and that will be beautiful in your sight. Show each of us what you want us to do and help us moment by moment to draw strength From the beautiful cross of Jesus, we ask in his holy name. Amen.